Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy and Adventure, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the historical fantasy Falcon series, and Girl of Fire, the first in the YA fantasy series. My May interview is with Ethan Hardy. We discuss her mystery ghost story, The Evil Within. S.M. Hardy also writes fantasy under her own name, Sue Tingey. She grew up in southeast London and worked in banking for more years than she cares to remember before turning her attention to arboricultural management. She has now given up the day job to allegedly spend more time with her husband. He, however, has noticed an awful lot more writing appears to be going on. You can follow the author on Twitter at Sutinji, T-I-N-G-E-Y. So, my review of The Evil Within. Jim, our narrator, experiences a crisis of conscience in the wake of the possible suicide of his girlfriend. He quits his high-paying job seizing assets for a loan company and moves to a small village near the seaside to get away from it all. With no plans to occupy himself, and a golden parachute from his company, Jim finds himself with a lot of time on his hands, time that he hopes will help him heal from his loss. Instead, odd and spooky events immediately begin occurring. After he hears sounds from the empty attic, he finds out from his new friend, Handyman Jed, that a little girl died falling down the steps. Soon, Jim begins to doubt that the little girl's death was an accident. Jed and a kindly neighbor, Emma, believe in supernatural visitations, and they think that Jim is receiving warnings from ghosts. Yet, some of the things that happen to Jim, like gas from the lit stove filling the cottage, seems too real to be ascribed to ghosts. Is Jim going mad, doing things he's unaware of, or is there a real threat to his own well-being? Even Jed and Emma begin to wonder. Now for a short reading. So I'm reading from a scene where the narrator is speaking with Jed, his new friend in the village. What was all that about at the pub, I asked, as I poured us both free fingers of scotch. He leaned back in the chair and stretched out his legs. I'm not sure you'd want to know. The kid said something about superstitious old nonsense. Jed took a sip of his drink and grimaced as the alcohol hit the back of his throat. Nice drop of whiskey. I nodded. My boss used to give us each a bottle every Christmas, and I acquired a taste for it. He picked up the bottle and studied the label. You didn't get this down at the village shop, he said with a laugh. Um, do you think whatever was up in the attic has gone? He peered at me over his glasses. I doubt it. 
but I'd advise you to ignore it. Ignore what? Ever have a near-death experience? He asked with a sudden change of subject, making me blink. No, have you? He gave a laugh. A plenty of times, lad. But they had nothing to do with the way I am. I was born this way. Maybe you were too. I just wondered, that's all. Judd, what the hell are you talking about? You know why this cottage is empty? I frowned at him. The owners are overseas? Now that's true. Mr. and Mrs. Morgan moved to New York to be close to her parents. It's doubtful they'll be coming back. And if you decide to stay, I suspect you'll get this place real cheap. I'm here for a month, two at most. Oh, don't be so sure, he said. The estate agent didn't say anything about the moving away long term. She wouldn't. I shivered, the saying about someone walking over your grave springing to mind, making me shiver again. I took a sip of my drink. You're talking as though there's some big mystery. No mystery about it. Do you know why Charles and Yvonne Morgan moved to New York? Now I was more than a little puzzled and frustrated by Jed and his cryptic comments and questions. You just said to be near to our parents. He looked at me over the rim of his glass. But why? I shook my head. How the hell should I know? He took another sip of his drink. They had a daughter, Crystal, six years old, cute kid. A few years back, she thought she'd go searching up in a loft for her Christmas presents. At least that's what they thought she was doing. Anyway, she fell, broke her neck. He gave a shrug. Neither of them was ever the same, and as soon as they could, they could move out. That's terrible, I said. His eyes met mine. She's who you heard. I stared at him a moment. That's not funny. Don't I know it? I've been seeing and hearing this kind of thing all my life. I with that fantasy writer Sue Tingianier. She is writing her supernatural crime novels under the name S.M. Hardy. And we're going to jump right in and discuss the main character, Jim. And he's not a, immediately a sympathetic person, even after he does quit his job for moral reasons. Now, how do his interactions with his new friends, Jed and Emma, and the village preacher reveal a more sympathetic side of his nature? Well, firstly, um, good afternoon, Gabrielle, and thanks very much for having me. <laughs> you welcome, Sue. Sorry to <laughs> skip right past that. Uh, right. Well, Jim, he's not really a bad person. Um, he's just a young man who's used to having more or less whatever he wants. He's he used to have a high-powered job that brought him good money and bonuses. He's got a beautiful fiancée. And that I still to go with the job and benefits he bought. But when we meet him, he's beginning to realise what a selfish jerk he's been. And he's lonely. Um, this instantly gives him an affinity with Jed, the handyman who he meets in his new home in the village, uh, who's also a very lonely man. Um, the priest is also lonely. And Jim genuinely feels sorry for him because despite him making Jim feel uneasy, Jim is capable of empathy 
And I suppose he can see how lonely this man is, and especially from the state of the house where he lives. And um, he really wants to be good. And really, this is the reason he left his job in the city, because it was turning him into someone who really didn't want to be. So Jim wants to be good. That's why uh, he's quit his job. He's moved to this nice little village. But pretty soon in the book, he has these really unsettling moments when he experiences the killer's sick rage firsthand that does help him solve mysteries, but it also puts him at psychological risk. Your story suggests that one person's evil nature can take root in another person. Could we look at it as a type of contagion that can move from one person to another? Now, contagion, actually, that's a very interesting word for it. I never really thought of it that way. Uh, In The Evil Within, I'm exploring whether an individual's inherent evil can live on in another person. There are a lot of bad and not very nice people in the world, but are there many who are really, truly evil? Or are they just a certain kind of person with a certain mindset or perhaps with a particular element missing from their personality? For instance, psychopaths are often called evil, but what is missing with them is any empathy for their fellow man. So what if this missing element of compassion is replaced with something else? And this something else, true evil, if you like, is so strong, it can't die. I mean, religion talks about the soul and how when we die, the soul moves on. What if the soul is so evil and full of darkness that it refuses to move on? I'm obviously drawn to this sort of ideas mm-hmm. because at the moment I'm writing um, something that deals with demonic possession. So I suppose I'm moving on from this particular um, idea. So, right, we're thinking that uh, there are some people that are lacking empathy. Now, Jim does have empathy, but he has a psychic link with the killer. And Jed also has psychic links with ghosts, but not with the killer. So I guess that kind of got me interested. Jim and Jed are both lonely men, as you point out, and they do have a bond. But what is it about Jim that makes him, let's say, that lets this sick killer make a psychic link with him and not with Jed? I think, basically, poor Jim is unfortunately, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, He's psychologically fragile. He's mourning still for his lost lover. And when the antagonist becomes aware of him, I think Jim becomes a challenge and also a threat. The village itself, like you said, Jim might be in the wrong place at the wrong time because Jim is a newcomer to the village. He's just rented that cottage in Slyford, St. James, Uh, and the village itself seems to have somewhat of an evil vibe, especially in the beginning when it's always raining. For example, a church and rectory are in disrepair. The paint on the rectory is peeling and chipped. Uh, Can we take the appearance of the village as a symbol of things that have befallen the village? I think partly... Um, it's true that the church has rather forsaken Slyford St. James. Um, the Reverend Peter Davies was sent there 
more to get him out of the way because he was becoming an embarrassment through his drinking than for the villagers, uh, the villagers' uh, spiritual well-being. Um, the village is basically slowly dying. Uh, Jim, comment, Jim comments on the size of the churchyard in contrast to the size of the village, wondering why it's so huge. And of course, once there was a thriving community, but this is slowly dwindling away. And this is one of the reasons for Slyford becoming the way it is. Um, it's had its share of tragedies, and this has left a dark shadow of the villages that have been left behind. We definitely feel that. Uh, speaking of Jim's friends, there are also several scenes where Jim meets presumably a ghost at his friend Emma's house. Mm-hmm. And we think that ghost might be Emma's husband, although it's never explicitly stated. His yeah. meeting with that ghost is very different from the appearances that Jim's fiance has mm. in the book. I thought that was interesting. It kind of doesn't it say something about the kind of relationship Jim had with his fiancée versus the kind of relationship Emma had? Yeah. Um, when Jim meets Reggie, Reggie, and you're right, it, although I don't actually say it, it's Emma's husband, um, he, of course, has no idea at all that he's talking to a dead man. Although in hindsight, Jim realises, because all the clues are there, uh, Reggie he appears in his own home, in his own chair, nursing a glass of his favourite brandy, uh, sorry, whiskey. Um, but he doesn't bring bad, bad news. He's there for a purpose. He's there to encourage Jim to stay, telling him and Emma and Jed need him. And um, Reggie wasn't just Emma's husband. He was also Jed's best friend. And in his appearance is purely out of his love for the pair of them and also perhaps to help a young man who he knows they are growing fond of. I think he truly believes, if ghosts believe anything I suppose, um, that Jim could be the answer to their problems. Conversely, Jim's conversation with Kat is completely different. Um, One thing, he knows she's dead. Um, she appears as she was immediately after her death in what Jim assumes is a dream. Again, there's a glass of whiskey, but this time it's on the table between them. It's a glass of the special stuff his former employer used to give him uh, and his favourite employees every Christmas. Now, I guess you could read this as representing the job that came, that came between them in life. Mm-hmm. Because the job did come between them. She's also wearing her engagement ring, which he tells us isn't right. She threw it in his face a few hours before she died. So perhaps this is a symbol that she still loves him. Well, she gives him some tough love in the conversation and she berates him for feeling sorry for himself. But she also offers him a chance for redemption. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think that's true. So when Jim isn't spending time with his friends Emma and Jed, he visits the pub, which I thought was understood to be the center of English village social life, especially for men. Uh, The pub has a special role to play in Jim's life, doesn't it? Well, yes, it does. I mean, we are led to believe by a few things that are said, particularly by Kat, his um, deceased lover, 
that he was bordering on having an alcohol problem. But to be fair on him, being alone in a small village, where else do you meet people? Mm-hmm. It's the only place. I mean, at one time it was always said that every English village you would visit would have a church and a pub. And these two places were the hubs of the community. I mean, in the old days, the church would be where the ladies would get to meet each other every Sunday and have a chat before going home to lunch. Uh, Whereas the pub would be where the men would hang out in the evenings. And to be honest, it hasn't changed much over the years (laughs) in some rural areas. (laughs) Well, the village is uh, set out very clearly in your book. What was the inspiration for the village of Slyford St. James in Devon? Mm-hmm. Well, there are a lot of small villages, not just in the southwest of England, but throughout the country, where the populations are decreasing as the youngsters move away, um, wanting to go to the city perhaps, but also no longer being able to afford to um, pay the increasing property prices. Mm-hmm. Of course, then the old timers gradually die off. It leaves a big hole in the community that is never really filled again by local people. And it's sad, really. Um, when you move into a village, it's obviously important to make an effort to become part of the community, but some people never do. And this can kill a small village completely. I mean, very early on, Jim decides village life isn't for him. But events conspire against him, and rather than run back to the city, he's forced to face um, his fears and take a stand. Um, I hope that by the end of the book, it seems that he's beginning to change his mind as he makes friends and settles into village life. You yourself live in Devon, don't you? Sorry? You yourself live in a village, don't you? Um, Well, Torquay is quite a large town, actually. But but, um, you do feel a sort of community spirit in the sort of the smaller areas within the uh, within the town. I mean, where we live, um, there's quite a community spirit along our row of houses. I mean, um, do, do you have the um, clapping for carers and your health service uh, during the week at all? Uh, no, no. Oh, we're here every Thursday um, during this virus. Um, everybody goes out at eight o'clock in the evening and claps for carers, and you can hear it all over the bay. Mm. Everybody clapping and cheering and fireworks. And um, obviously, I go out, and you see all the neighbours. And obviously, you can't really talk to them; you have to shout across the road. But we're all cheering and clapping, and you know. So, yeah, we have got a community spirit. Well, one last question for you. Uh, parts of your book are deliciously creepy and scary, according to your readers. Do you ever scare yourself so much writing that you can't sleep at night? Mm, it's funny that you should ask, actually. Um, I'm a real scaredy cat. If I watch a scary movie, I spend most of it peering out between my fingers. <laughs> uh, funnily enough, when I'm writing, I don't scare myself. But I think that's probably because I'm the one in control. Mm-hmm. I can control what happens. I mean, quite often, some of the biggest scenes that end up in my novels uh, come to me when I'm in bed at night, or um, actually, more accurately, accurately, early in the morning. Mm. I wake up and I start thinking about where the storyline is going and what scenes will pop into my head. Um, the scenes that 
really do affect me are usually the sad ones. If I have to write a death scene or a highly emotional one, I will quite often be crying as I type. Mm. But that's but that's when I know if it makes me cry, I must have got it right, or at least I hopefully have got it right. Yeah, so it'll affect your readers too. Well, what are you working on right now? Uh, right, well, I've written the second book in the series, which is due out in September, which is Evil Never Dies. Um, but I'm actually working on, at the moment, the second novel in a possible series that I've got with my agent at the moment, um, which, as I mentioned earlier, um, deals with um, possession uh, and actually um, voodoo in London, which isn't as strange as it seems, actually. And, well, supernatural crime again, I would say. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much for making time in your schedule to talk to us today. You're welcome, and thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to us today on the New Books Network Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I've been talking to S.M. Hardy about The Evil Within, a mystery ghost story. Join us in June when I chat with author and illustrator Kathleen Jennings about her gothic fantasy set in Australia, Fly Away. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the YA fantasy Girl of Fire, the first in the Verona's Quest series. You'll find the podcast schedule on my website, gabriellematthew.com. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more. At Gabrielle Author. My name is spelled G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. We'll be talking to you again next month. <laughs>